Welcome to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In SimonCast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide-ranging civil conversations. Hey, it's Allie. I'm the editor for SimonCast. I'm here to introduce this week's episode, which is a conversation we recorded in June of 2020 with William Burns. He was then the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Now he's the director of the CIA. In this conversation, he talks with Paul Simon Institute director John Shaw about his career as a diplomat and the state of American diplomacy under President Trump. He also tells us what it was like to meet with Vladimir Putin while he was the U.S. ambassador to Russia. Since Russia invaded Ukraine last week, Burns has been in the news given his past and present jobs. Although this conversation was recorded some time ago, we think it gives context and insight into the experience of someone you've likely been reading about. Here's the conversation. We have a great guest today, Ambassador William Burns. Uh, Ambassador Burns is now the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Before that, he had a stellar, remarkable diplomatic career uh, for 33 years, was ambassador to Jordan and to Russia and also uh, had a number of important jobs in the State Department, rising to the level of Deputy Secretary of State. Uh, Bill Burns has also written an amazing memoir called The Back Channel, which I have given to several of my students and I recommend for just its uh, really insightful and fun, witty, self-deprecating account of of diplomacy. One of the leading uh, scholars of the Cold War has called this the best post-Cold War memoir that's ever been written. Bill, it's great to see you again. Nice to see you, John, too, and great to be with all of your listeners. Great. I might might just say that Bill and I met some years ago. I was working on a book on Senator Richard Lugar, and Bill was then the ambassador to Russia, and I was traveling with Senator Lugar there. So my first trip to Moscow, Bill was an ambassador, and I met him there, and we had some follow-up interviews, and he was remarkably helpful and generous with his time. So that was a few years ago, wasn't it, Bill? It was. No, it was my pleasure. It was 15 years ago, I think. And I remember the young senator from Illinois who was traveling with Senator Lugar to Barack Obama at the time as well. So a lot, lot of things have changed since that August 2005 moment. But it's great to be with you again. Great. Thank you. Well, Bill, let's start out with the Carnegie Endowment. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a, a critical institution in Washington, maybe a little less known in the middle, middle part of the country. Tell us a little bit about the, the, the mission and the, the history of, of Carnegie. Sure. Well, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace is the oldest international affairs think tank in the world, set up in 1910 by Andrew Carnegie. And we now have six centers around the world. So not just in Washington, but also in India and China and Europe and the Middle East and in Russia. So we aspire at least to be a truly global institution. Of the 200 scholars who work at Carnegie, about half are American, half non-American. And so I think especially on today's international landscape, when you can't understand, let alone try and manage and solve all the problems on that landscape, just looking at them through the prism of Washington, D.C., I think it really helps to be able to bring to bear uh, you know, a range of different perspectives from around the world. And, and so that's what we do. And we're an independent institution in the sense that we don't espouse any particular political point of view or national point of view. And I think that's also important these days in a world where it's too easy for people to become polarized. 
Does each of these centers have its own distinct mission? I know because you use the term six centers, one network. So how do the six work together? Well, they're, you know, they're largely autonomous in the sense that they shape their own research agendas, you know, all of which are connected broadly to the pursuit of international peace, which is certainly a full-time occupation these <laughs> days, you know, given all the challenges around the world. But what we've tried to encourage all of our centers to do is focus not just on traditional regional conflicts and major power competition, but on new and emerging challenges, whether it's climate change, uh, the revolution in technology, and how do you maximize the benefits of the revolution in artificial intelligence while minimizing the very real dislocations that come from that as well. Um, and so, you know, we've tried to make sure that we're focused on the most important challenges on the international landscape today. Uh, Bill, I've read some of your reporting on COVID in, in Russia, and it's striking because it's, uh, I mean, I think you are telling the story of just how this crisis is unfolding in Russia and how it's putting pressure on Putin better than really any place else I've been, been reading about. I mean, is this something, I mean, particularly as a former diplomat, American diplomat in, yeah. in, in Russia, that must be a, a source of particular pride in, in the quality of the work. It is, and the fact that it's honest and independent too, you know, in, in societies and parts of the world that aren't noted for their honesty or their independence these days, and they're tough places to navigate. Um, but yeah, on the pandemic, um, which is a challenge that the Russian leadership has not managed very well. I mean, we live in a glass house in the United States in a sense, because I don't think we've, at least at the federal level, covered ourselves with glory either. Um, but I think that's taken a toll on Putin as well especially since it's combined with, you know, another big problem, which is the collapse in the global oil market as well. And so, you know, what we've tried to do is explain uh, to people both inside and outside Russia what these kind of twin challenges mean, um, not just for the future of the political system in Russia and its role in the world, but what does it mean for individual Russians who, like lots of individual Americans, are struggling today. Right. Well, Bill, let's, let's talk about your memoir. And um, maybe even starting from your, your account of growing up. I mean, you're, you're come, your family's from Philadelphia. Uh, your dad was a military officer, became an arms control negotiator. But in the course of your first, I guess, 17, 18 years, you moved a dozen times, went to, I think you right. said, three different high schools. I and did, you, yeah. you wrote, yeah, and you wrote that, that it, it it shaped you in kind of a profound way of being observant, of watching people, uh, but, but also cultivating a kind of a detachment. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure, yeah, I mean, you know, going to three different high schools, I started in California, then Oklahoma, and finished up graduating in a high school in Pennsylvania. So, you know, that breeds both, I think, uh, you know, an understanding of lots of different people in American society, a tolerance, which I think is really important, an appreciation for the diversity and the richness of America from literally from one coast to the other. I mean, it's also I, I, a good source of humility, too. I love playing sports in high school. And so the one virtue of, you know, going to so many different high schools is when you had a lousy basketball season in one place, you could reinvent yourself <laughs> in the next place. And I did a lot of reinventing because I had more than one lousy season. Um, but, it, you know, in growing up in the, in the American military, I think, was also, you know, a way of understanding better our own society across, you know, lines of race and ethnicity, um, you know, in ways in which 
you know, relatively few Americans get to experience it. So I, you know, I never thought of this at the time as preparation for being a diplomat. I didn't aspire to that when I was growing up. But I think it did help me understand my own society better because one of the big dangers for diplomats serving overseas is you can kind of get detached from your own society. I remember when George Shultz was Secretary of State, I was a very young diplomat. There was this story that circulated that every new American ambassador before going out to their post would come up and see Schultz in his grand office on the seventh floor of the State Department. And he had this big globe, which came up to about his waist in his office, which I later had in my office as Deputy Secretary of State. But what he would do is ask the outgoing US ambassador where, is, where her or his country was. And invariably, I would have done the same thing. They'd point to Russia or Jordan or wherever they were going. And he would not so gently move their finger back to the United States and say, that's your country and you know, don't ever forget it. And whether the story was true or not, it had an impact on people because you know, it's a reminder um, that you gotta know your own society. You have to know where you come from if you're gonna be an effective diplomat, an effective promoter of American interests and values around the world. Right. Well, Bill, it's interesting because sometimes when you read a diplomatic memoir, it's just this succession of triumphs. It's almost like each, each accomplishment is, is only exceeded by the subsequent one. But you write with remarkable humility. And I loved you, the way you started your first, talk, talking about your first assignment in Jordan. You said, my first diplomatic mission was an utter failure. Tell yeah, us about your, your, uh, your first mission in Jordan. Well, I used to tell this story to entering classes of new diplomats when I was a senior official, just to sort of put them at their ease a little bit that not every career gets off to a rocket propelled start. And mine certainly didn't. When I was, I think it was in my first post in Jordan, my second year there, I got persuaded by this grizzled old administrative counselor, the guy who basically managed the embassy to drive a truck from Amman across the desert to Baghdad in Iraq. This was in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war in the early 1980s, a terrible conflict. Um, but this was to deliver some unclassified communications equipment um, to our diplomatic facility in Baghdad. So I get to the Jordanian-Iraqi border and this grizzled old administrative counselor had told me, don't worry, all the skids are greased. Well, they weren't greased. I ended up um, being apprehended and held for two days at this isolated border post. This is before the day of, you know, iPhones or anything else. You know, the cell phones we had were about the size of small refrigerators then. So I had no way of communicating. I eventually made it to Baghdad under police escort. The Iraqis, this is Saddam Hussein's Iraq, confiscated the truck and everything in it. And I spent the next three and a half decades as a diplomat, always worried that my next paycheck was going to get docked for the cost of all that. Fortunately, I escaped without that happening. But it was not, as I said, a rocket-propelled start to my career. Bill, let's talk about some of the secretaries of state you worked with and under, and particularly as a way of kind of illuminating the challenge of diplomacy. And you mentioned Secretary Schultz. And the one thing that you mentioned in your book is that Schultz had this concept of diplomacy as gardening. Explain that concept. Yeah, well, it's a concept that, that Secretary Schultz had talked and written about that George Kennan, the famous American diplomat at the very beginning of the Cold War, who shaped the American strategy of containment, had also used. And their point was simply that 
you know, diplomacy is not just about bouncing from one big negotiation to another or one crisis to another. It's oftentimes about the day in, day out work of understanding foreign countries, of understanding what makes foreign leaderships tick, of cultivating relationships with partners and allies um, that you'll have to draw on in moments of crisis or conflict as well. And so that's why both Kennan and Schultz use the imagery of a gardener as someone who's got to constantly be pruning and weeding where there are problems before they grow into much bigger ones, you know, and, you know, keeping the soil fertile for opportunities and for good ideas and for advances of American interests as well. And I always, you know, throughout my career thought that was a, a pretty compelling metaphor because that's a lot of what diplomats do. Oftentimes American diplomats do operate in back channels, kind of out of sight and out of mind, focused on that kind of work. But it's that quiet work that almost always sets the stage for those big moments when American diplomacy can deliver for US citizens. Well, one of the most riveting account parts of your book is uh, your description of working for James Baker, uh, Secretary of State in the Bush 41 administration. And the thing that is, you know, many parts are striking, but in, in many ways, uh, Baker was against type. And we think of someone, you know, who's deeply learned in diplomatic theory or, you know, nuanced in languages and cultures, but he was a very smart, shrewd, man who knew what he needed to know, and particularly talk about uh, Baker as a negotiator. He was a terrific negotiator. And, and just as you said, I don't think Secretary Baker, you know, ever thought of himself or aspired to be a grand strategist. Um, but he was a terrific negotiator. Um, he had as close a bond to a, a president, to President George H.W. Bush, as I think any Secretary of State of the 10 that I served had. And that makes a huge difference as well, because there was no foreign leader who doubted that Baker was speaking um, for the president of the United States. But Baker had first a real sense, he had, he had what are the keys, I think, to successful diplomats and successful negotiators. He had a real sense of strategic purpose. He knew what he wanted to achieve. Um, he was adaptable. I mean, he knew that you know, you'd have to adjust your strategy as you went along. But he and President Bush 41, I think, understood that that moment of singular American dominance on the international landscape just after the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union wasn't a permanent condition. It wasn't going to last forever. And they saw their task as using that window of dominance to shape an international order which would serve American interests for a long time. He also had a sense of strategic empathy, which is not the same thing as sympathy. It doesn't mean that you're you know, um, you know, so sympathetic to someone you're negotiating with that you lose sight of what you want to achieve. But you're able to put yourself in those shoes because, you know, you don't have to indulge or accept somebody else's point of view, but understanding it, I think, is the starting point for successful diplomacy. And last but not least, Baker had a real sense of strategic discipline. Um, he was rigorous in ensuring that people followed through on decisions. Um, he was disciplined as a human being, too. I remember one marathon negotiation with Hafez al-Assad. Um, this was in the run-up to the Madrid Peace Conference, just after Desert Storm and the expulsion of the Iraqis from Kuwait <clears throat> during the first Gulf War. And Baker had set about trying to assemble for the first time ever uh, the Israelis, as well as all the Arab players, including the Palestinians, around a common agenda in one place, ultimately in Madrid. 
Assad was one of the hardest people to persuade to come into that room. Assad, Hafez al-Assad, the then bloody dictator of Syria, the father of the current bloody dictator of Syria, um, was also famous for his stamina. So I remember this one meeting went on for nine hours. Um, Assad had this you know, incredible capacity. I always thought his bladder was surgically improved where he would sit motionless in his chair and drink endless cups of sweet Arabic tea and not move. So Baker, ever the competitive Texan, was determined to match him cup for cup and not move either. Four and a half hours into this marathon negotiation, our then ambassador in Damascus, a wonderful US diplomat, cracked, walks over to Baker and whispers in his ear that he had an urgent phone call to make. Well, he had urgent business, but it wasn't a phone call. <laughs> So Baker and Assad then spent the next 30 minutes, you know, commiserating about bladder challenge diplomats. But Baker was a very disciplined person, not just over his bladder. And you, you, you use a wonderful phrase. You said he had almost a lethal sense of how to close a negotiation. Talk about that. I mean, just this sense of really what the other party could give and yeah. then when it's time to just, do, you know, do the deal. We did. I remember in, in trying to persuade the Palestinians to put together a, a, a negotiation and come to the Madrid Peace Conference, um, you know, by, by the end of the process, they were floundering and they were about 80% of the way there in terms of the kind of delegation that they needed to put together. But Baker faced a choice, you know, about whether or not to take the plunge and invite people to this conference. Um, not knowing that, you know, all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed. But he also recognized that, you know, there came, there come times when you just have to take that kind of a risk. I remember also in his conversation with the Palestinians, he peppered the conversation with so many Texas aphorisms that even though we had a wonderful Arabic language interpreter, he was really challenged. I mean, things like, you know, that dog won't hunt, or I remember telling the Palestinians that, they, didn't, they shouldn't want Baker to leave a dead cat at their doorstep, which they eventually understood to mean you don't want to be the ones blamed for, not, for this conference not happening. But that took a little bit of uh, creative interpreting as well. But, but he knew when to hold them and when to close them, you know, like really good poker players. Bill, in your book, you talk about the Madrid conference in 1991. Is in some sense, almost a zenith of uh, American strength. I mean, you know, since aside from the right after World War II. Um, and in your account, you describe the Americans as having, the, the Bush administration as having both a real sense of American power and also the limits to that power. Could you talk about that for a sec? Sure. I mean, I think they understood, for example, after the expulsion of, of Saddam Hussein's Iraqi forces from Kuwait, in the spring of 1991, they understood this was a moment when you could use American power to produce progress on other issues like the Arab-Israeli issue, which I just described. But they also understood limits. Um, you know, for years afterward, President Bush, George H.W. Bush and Baker and Colin Powell, who was then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, were criticized for not pursuing the Iraqi forces out of Kuwait all the way to Baghdad and overthrowing the Saddam Hussein regime. In some ways, militarily, that would have been the easiest thing in the world to do because the Iraqi military had fallen apart and they were fleeing headlong back up the highway to Baghdad. But Baker and Bush and Brent Scowcroft, the National Security Advisor and others, you know, made a difficult but I think very thoughtful decision, which was they understood that if the US military was to do that, it would break the coalition, 
that Baker in particular had so painstakingly put together. The, the task of that international coalition was to expel Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. It wasn't to overthrow the Saddam Hussein regime in Baghdad. They also understood what they would take on, that they would in effect own Iraq after that. And they had a healthy understanding of how complicated an undertaking that would be and how complicated a place Iraq would be. And they also, as I said, had an appreciation of the other ways in which you could use that moment of you know, uncontested American power after the success of Desert Storm. And they wanted to focus that on you know, progress on the Arab-Israeli conflict as well. So you know, that was an illustration of your point, John, that they understood that however um, enormous American power was at that moment, it had its limits and you have to be careful to match ends to means. Bill, in your book, uh, you know, a decade later, we have a new Bush administration in power, and of course, the Iraq war ensued, and no need to relitigate the war. But the one thing that was really powerful in your book is talking about your efforts within the government. You were a senior State Department official to shape the debate. Um, the State Department eventually was marginalized, and other powers within the administration took hold. And you write about just the, the, the moral dilemma about whether you stay inside the administration and try to, you know, to shape policy that way, whether to leave. As you say, you know, it's, it's moral considerations, career, family. Tell me about how you sort that out then and, and how, how you sort it out now. I mean, I tried to be honest when I wrote the book, uh, because to this day, I'm not sure that I got that balance right. I'm not sure that I did the right thing. I, I am sure that, you know, I didn't push hard enough um, the concerns that I and, and others, I was then leading the Near East Bureau in the State Department. And, you know, I think almost to a person in that part of the State Department, um, you know, we had profound misgivings about a rush to war in Iraq um, in 2003. Um, none of us need to be persuaded that Iraqis, the Middle East, American interests would be better off without Saddam Hussein, you know, a ruthless and brutal dictator in Iraq, you know, people would be better off without him. But it was an enormously complicated undertaking. And we were worried about what would happen on the day after. Very much the worry that, you know, more than a decade before in the Bush 41 administration, you know, the leading statesmen were focused on as well. So I remember the most depressing single brainstorming session of my checkered career as a diplomat was the summer of July of 2002, I think, where a couple of colleagues of mine and I, Ryan Crocker, who was then working with me as one of the deputies in the Near East Bureau, a wonderful American diplomat who served as U.S. ambassador in some of the hardest places in the world, and another colleague, David Pierce, and I sat down and tried to think of all the things we thought could go wrong the day after a successful military overthrow of Saddam Hussein. And, you know, we came up with, I think it was like 11 or 12 single space pages, which, you know, you reread later, we got it about half right. We identified some of the problems of unrest, sectarian unrest inside uh, Iraq itself, of predatory regional neighbors who would take advantage of the huge um, challenges that was posed for, you know, any American occupying force. Um, but we missed a lot of things as well. But it was an honest effort um, to lay out our concerns. And we, I remember I titled the memo, The Perfect Storm, because that's, that's what we felt that this combination of circumstances could produce for the United States. Uh, Colin Powell, then the US Secretary of State, our boss, didn't really need to be persuaded of this. 
um, he drew on our arguments in a conversation he had with President Bush, George W. Bush, a couple of weeks later at the White House. But the truth is we had very little impact on the choices that were ultimately made to go to war. And I guess all I would say on the, you know, the, the conflict that I think any career public servant is inevitably going to have at one point or another in their careers is it's true that public service is a disciplined profession. It's sort of like the U.S. military. If you're a battalion commander, you, you know, you don't get to decide I'm going to go right instead of left when, you know, your, your order has been to go left. But even though you have to act in a disciplined way, you don't have the luxury of running off and making a public statement because you disagree with the policy. You can resign, which is a perfectly honorable thing to do. And I have huge admiration for those of my colleagues who chose to do that. There were about three over the Iraq war in 2003, a couple of dozen over the Balkans and the war and the situation in Bosnia uh, in the early 1990s. Uh, and there have been a number in this administration who have left quite honorably. I think it's also honorable um, to stay within the discipline of a system, but only if you're honest about your concerns, if you're willing to speak truth to power, um, even when it's not convenient, either in career terms or policy terms or anything else. So that was an imperfect effort. Um, we didn't do it as effectively. I didn't do it as effectively as I should have. But it was an imperfect illustration of that responsibility you have inside the government when you have real concerns about a policy direction. Right. Bill, in, in your book, you write about diplomacy. And, and let me just read a couple sentences and just have you d elaborate. You say, it's among the oldest professions, but also among the most misunderstood and the most unsatisfying to describe. It is by its nature unheroic, it's an unheroic, quiet endeavor, less swaggering than unrelenting, often unfolding in back channels out of sight and out of mind. Its successes are rarely celebrated, its failures almost always scrutinized. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a classic illustration of a you know, diplomat feeling sorry for yourself, I guess. <laughs> but, no, but I mean, by contrast sometimes to the U.S. military, and, and you know, as we discussed before, I grew up as an army brat, I have huge respect the U.S. military, but you know, in many ways, the successes of the U.S. military, and there are many, are surgical. You know, you can see the results. Oftentimes, in diplomacy, it's more like preventive care. You know, your your successes, with the rare exception of big agreements that get negotiated uh, or conflicts that get prevented, are much more about that gardening work that we were talking about before. It's it's preventive care again. And so, you know, I wrote the book in a way to try to bring diplomacy to life for a wider audience, you know, because it's understandable that lots of Americans aren't going to have the time um, or energy to pay a lot of attention to diplomats. You know, there are only about 8,000 professional American diplomats. Bob Gates, the former U.S. Secretary of Defense, used to remind people that there are more members of American military bands than there are professional diplomats. So. You know, it was an effort just to use stories and narrative and my own experiences, for better or worse, you know, the few successes I had and the failures I had as well, to humanize, you know, a profession for people as well. Bill, you, uh, towards the end of the book, and again, your book was published in 2019, so you probably wrote this in 2018, you say, it's difficult to overstate the damage that has been done to America's standing and influence in the world over the past three years. Um, play off of that and also what's happened in the subsequent uh, 
four or five months here with COVID-19. How, how is America viewed in the world right now, do you think? Well, I mean, I think we're, um, you know, there are a lot of people around the world who, whatever their grievances about particular American policies, and there are many, whatever their resentments of America's sheer weight in the world, um, like the fact that Americans aspire to bigger things. They like to see the United States as a, as a country of possibility, of mobility. And, you know, I think, I, I always found as a diplomat, we get a lot farther overseas uh, with the power of our example than the, we do with the power of our preaching. And the honest truth is that the power of example has been pretty lousy in recent years. And I'm not trying to suggest that that is entirely the invention of the Trump administration. I mean, we were drifting in different ways before that through you know, issues of racism in our society that have bubbled back up in recent years. They've never really gone away through inequalities in our society, whether it's inequalities of wealth or of opportunity as well. I think in the pandemic itself, you know, there have been lots of examples of governors and mayors and, you know, American citizens, whether healthcare workers or others, demonstrating remarkable leadership and heroism. I don't think the federal government has, you know, covered itself in glory, as I said before. And so the image that we've created, I think, for the rest of the world um, is, is one of a faltering power, at least in dealing with the pandemic. Um, and so that's reinforced, I think, a lot of the skepticism about the United States, which was already, you know, drifting before. Um, so I think we've, we've done a lot of, we're digging a deep hole for ourselves right now in the international landscape. Part of that has to do with, I think, you know, the unilateralist impulses of the current administration. You know, an administration, or at least a president, who seems convinced that American power in the world is best served unilaterally. That we're kind of like Gulliver tied down by the Lilliputians and, you know, the way to express American power was to break all those bonds. I think that is exactly the wrong prescription for an international landscape in which we're no longer the only big kid on the geopolitical block. It's not the world that I experienced working for Secretary Baker, you know, 30 years ago. It is a world in which the United States, I would argue, still has a better hand to play than China or Russia or any of our major power rivals. But that's not just because of our military and economic leverage, as important as they are. It's also about our capacity to invest in alliances, to draw on partners, to mobilize coalitions of countries. That's what sets us apart from lonelier powers like China and Russia. And I'm afraid we're squandering that today. And the last thing I would say is we're also hollowing out you know, a lot of the institutions that matter most in taking advantage of that asset of those alliances and partnerships and coalitions, and that's diplomacy. You know, in my old institution, the State Department, we've seen the systematic sidelining of career expertise. We've seen a huge drop in the number of young Americans applying to join the Foreign Service, something like a 40% drop over the course of the last three years. You know, that's a reflection of people's unease with institutions that are that are being hollowed out. And we need to reverse that, I think, because if, if the COVID pandemic has taught us anything, it's not just about the resilience of American society when Americans do pull together. It's also about the importance of consistent leadership at the top. And it's about the importance of expertise of institutions that actually work for Americans. And I think you know American diplomacy is one of those. And I really worry about the extent to which it's being hollowed out today.
Bill, you wrote a, a recent essay in The Atlantic where you, you called for a renewed effort on public service. You know, obviously coming from a background, your dad, you know, fought in Vietnam. He was an arms control negotiator, you know, and you, in the book, you say that he told you working for your country is the proudest thing you'll ever do. But in your essay, you say we can imagine what a new ethos of public service looks like, but how to get it going is, yeah. is a more difficult challenge. Talk about that. It is hard. I mean, I think we do face a crisis of public service in the U.S. today for all the reasons I was just describing before. I think, um, you know, we need to stop. I guess the first thing we need to do is stop what has been a kind of war on government, which is a politically very popular thing to talk about. It's easy to demonize expertise and demonize institutions. But I think, you know, maybe the pandemic has helped us to appreciate the need for that kind of expertise in different areas. The second thing, though, is we need to be honest with ourselves, those of us who have been career public servants, that we have a lot of reforming to do within those institutions, which is not necessarily just a function of budgets, and it's not just a function of what respect you get or you don't get from citizens at large. I mean, even in the State Department, you know, there are individual career diplomats who can be incredibly resourceful and entrepreneurial and courageous. As an institution, the State Department is rarely accused of being too agile or too full of initiative. We get in our, we got in our own way a lot over the years. So that needs to change. There needs to be a real honest reckoning with the need for reform in many of those institutions so that American taxpayers are getting what they deserve. And then the third thing, that I mentioned in the article is, I really think this is a time to think big about public service. And here I'm not talking just about military service, as crucial as that is. I'm not talking about mandatory national service, but I am talking about ways in which you can incentivize and encourage young people, middle-aged people, elderly people to engage in periods of public service, you know, from America Corps, which is the you know, the institution which has been developed in recent years to bring, you know, civilians to bear on all sorts of different challenges in our own society. We ought to be thinking about a public health core of, you know, people who have expertise in, in medicine and in healthcare as well, on whom you can draw in emergencies like the one that, you know, we're going through right now. I think you can adapt the GI Bill, which has been so successful in encouraging um, people to join the U.S. military could, provides, you know, educational benefits afterwards. You can adapt that to, you know, providing incentives for civilian service for either college graduates or those who are just leaving high school. So there are lots of things that we could do that aren't necessarily going to break the budget. I mean, they're not enormously expensive. But if we're ever going to overcome, I think, the fissures and the rifts and the differences, the polarization of our own society today, um, it's going to be really important, I think, for Americans, especially at a relatively young age, a relatively early stage in their lives and careers, can experience people in other parts of American society and have a shared sense of purpose about dealing with the whole range of issues, whether it's health issues or climate issues or issues of economic inequality, um, that are going to drive us farther and farther apart if we're not more careful about it. So I think there's a role you know, for a much more energetic approach to public service um, in helping to address those problems. How does that start? Does it require a new president, you know, maybe calling on someone like Colin Powell and using those kind of, you know, sure. symbols to just get this ethos reignited again? Or? Sure, it, 
It could, and you need, you need to create incentives for people. As I said, I mentioned the GI Bill-like approaches. Um, and, and you need to be, begin to create a culture in which people really feel the importance of that kind of contribution to their own society as well. But you're right, it starts with leadership. You know, a president who appreciates the importance of this. And, you know, to be fair, that's going to be really hard for whomever sitting in the White House, you know, in January 20th, um, 2021. You know, who knows what the economic landscape is going to look like that's going to have obvious impacts on budget. So you have to be realistic about that. But I think it's a moment when, you know, there are lots of Americans, at least, who appreciate what's at stake um, for us as a society. You know, whether it's in terms of continuing problems of race or economic inequality, as I mentioned before. And, you know, where there's an opportunity here, I think, with strong leadership um, to create a sense of people pulling together. And that's what, you know, um, um, you know, a more energetic approach to public service could help do. Right. Bill, we have some great questions for you, and I'd love for you to, uh, to respond. The first sure. one is uh, Cynthia from Sandy Springs, Maryland, saying, in the past, during times of global or regional crisis, the U.S. has catalyzed the response. This time, it's, it's the opposite. There's the America First ethos has kicked in. And we're actually uh, detouring pl planes loaded with supplies for other countries. And her question is, what are the short and long-term consequences of the lack of uh, U.S. leadership and generosity during COVID-19? Well, I think it's a really good question. And there are huge consequences. There are consequences for Americans and there are consequences for our role in the international landscape and our image. And there are also consequences for any hopes to deal successfully and minimize the deaths that come from the COVID pandemic. I mean, I think America first is, you know, is a concept that increasingly looks like Trump first, it looks like, you know, Americans alone, and it looks like, you know, the, the United States on its own as well. You know, this is a, I, I can't imagine any other administration that wouldn't have been putting enormous effort into coordinating with other countries on this issue, not because we agreed with them on everything, not because we're trying to turn a blind eye to you know, Chinese responsibility for you know, some of the problems that we ran into in this pandemic, but because cold-bloodedly that kind of coordination is important to save American lives. It's important to develop an effective vaccine. We should be talking to lots of different players right now about preparing for mass distribution of a vaccine when it's developed. So there's not too long a lag in getting it to people around the world especially in very fragile societies where the next wave of the pandemic is going to break and where they don't have anywhere near the infrastructure that we do in this country as well. So that sense of the United States, we can't solve all the problems in the world. There are limits to our power, especially today, but no one else can play. And I don't mean this as a statement of American arrogance, but no one else can play that role of organizer um, that you know, President George W. Bush played with the PEPFAR initiative to deal with the scourge of HIV AIDS, not just in Africa, but around the world. that President Obama played in the Ebola crisis, you know, five or six years ago. You know, that's a role that the United States, I think, is best placed to play. And it's not purely altruistic. It's very much in the interest of Americans to play that kind of role, to invest in partnerships and institutions, which are gonna keep those problems you know, further away that are going to ease them and ultimately solve them at, at far less cost to Americans as well. So I am, you know, mystified and, and, you know, sort of deeply disappointed 
that the United States hasn't mustered that kind of leadership right now. That's not a partisan statement. You know, I worked for five presidents, Republicans and, and Democrats, and I can't imagine any of them not exerting, you know, um, a more energetic leadership role on an issue like this. It, that's, you know, if America first means that you're looking out for the interests of Americans first and foremost, classically, that's why we need to be engaged internationally on issues like this. It's deeply in the interests of Americans to do. Great. Bill, Greg from Ashburn, Virginia asks about the State Department and its efforts on diversity and inclusion and says, has, has the State Department made progress? What more can it do to have a diplomatic corps that more nearly resembles uh, the, the country it, it represents? Yeah, it's a good question. And the honest answer is we haven't done nearly enough. Um, and we hadn't done nearly enough even before the Trump era. And in some ways in the Trump era, what halting progress we had made over the three and a half decades, I was a career diplomat, has been put into reverse. Um, you know, when I came into the Foreign Service in January of 1982, most U.S. diplomats looked like me. You know, nine out of 10 were white, only one in four at that time were women. Um, we had a, a lousy record in terms of racial and ethnic diversity. Um, and, and the questioner is right. We always get a lot farther overseas in getting people to pay attention to our message about our values, about you know, American interests, if our diplomatic corps looks like the society they represent. So you know, by the time I left the Foreign Service, as I said, we had made halting progress. We were getting closer to gender parity in the Foreign Service, but still woefully inadequate at senior levels. And we still were struggling with regard to African-American officers and others. And that's, that was on all of us because it wasn't just a function of failures of recruitment. Um, you know, it was not paying enough attention to retention, to mentoring you know, younger officers, not paying enough attention to the importance of creating you know, senior role models. And I knew a number of them you know, over the years who, who rose to the senior most ranks in the Foreign Service, but they were pretty lonely roles and that shouldn't have been the case. And so you know, if, if all of us have you know, agonized over the, you know, the you know, George Floyd's murder and you know, lots of the systemic racism that I think has been again exposed um, in recent weeks, and, and I hope that causes people to redouble their efforts um, to, you know, do lots of things in our society, but also to create, you know, a foreign service that looks more like the society that diplomats represent overseas. Good. Bill, we have a, a, a couple of questions on diplomatic technique that you might enjoy responding to. One is from Mary from Council Bluffs, Iowa, who says, how important is acting in diplomacy? She goes on to yeah. say, how often do you use nonverbal cues to, to shape a negotiation? Irritation, boredom, anger. Well, a lot of those come naturally. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> not, you don't have to act sometimes if you're sitting through long meetings or you're frustrated by the position that the people on the other side of the table are taking. I mean, my greatest challenge, I suppose, acting challenge as a diplomat was dealing with Muammar Gaddafi. Um, this was in the period right after 9-11. I was running the Middle East Bureau in the State Department, and we embarked on a set of secret negotiations with Gaddafi and the Libyan leadership, basically to move them out of the business of terrorism, take responsibility for the terrible terrorist attack on Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988, um, and also to give up what was a rudimentary nuclear program. But I mention this because this gets to the uh, 
both acting and diplomatic discipline part. So I had to meet with Gaddafi, who was by far the most peculiar character I ever met as an American diplomat. I remember one occasion, three o'clock in the morning, this is Gaddafi's prime time to meet, not my prime time as a diplomat, out in a tent in the middle of the Libyan desert, which I presume he did for security reasons. This was a simple army tent, one light bulb hanging down from the top tent pole, furnished not ostentatiously, but with white plastic lawn furniture. So it's Gaddafi and me sitting in the tent for four hours. He's going on and on. He had this really strange habit of, in mid-conversation, pausing and staring up at the ceiling for three or four minutes at a time, presumably to collect his thoughts. But, you know, it's a little bit off-putting. I'm a diplomat carried on, uh, you know, taught to carry on conversations. But anyway, what made it passable this time was that every time he was wearing what you could only describe as a yellow pajama top with photographs of dead African dictators on it. So every time he would pause and stare at the ceiling, I would try to guess how many of them I could identify. And I got pretty good because he <laughs> stared at the ceiling a lot in that conversation. The other Gaddafi story, I'm sorry, I don't mean to divert too much, but about a decade ago, he came to the UN General Assembly and world leaders come every September to deliver speeches which are supposed to be limited to like six or seven minutes. Gaddafi stood up at the podium and spoke for 90 minutes. He didn't have a text, he had little notes and scraps that kept falling off the podium. What I remember though is 75 minutes into this diatribe, I was listening to the wonderful UN Arabic language interpreter 75 minutes into this, you hear him say in Arabic, I can't take this anymore. <laughs> throws off his headphones, storms out of the interpreter's booth. So if you didn't speak Arabic, you had no idea what Gaddafi said in the next 15 minutes. So I don't know whether that's an, uh, you know, an example of acting or just you know, diplomatic patience, but that was strained in those times. Well, this is kind of an, along the same lines. Charles from Evanston says, what do you do during a negotiation when the other party just keeps repeating their talking points? And he also adds, I think a little mischievously, does this also work in relationships? <laughs> Hasn't worked. You can ask my wife. It doesn't work in my relationship. My talking points don't get me too far um, after 36 years. Um, no, I mean, you know, you get to a point in any negotiation where it's obvious you're not getting anywhere. You, you just have to bring it to a close because you can hit a point of diminishing returns and you're never going to find out you know, whether those repeated talking points are a bottom line or not, unless you walk out. I remember Secretary Baker did that a couple of times in the negotiations running up to the Madrid Peace Conference. And it was very effective because he was always a very controlled personality and very disciplined. So when on those rare occasions when he got visibly mad or he stood up and remember slammed his, you know, his notebook shut and started to walk out, it got people's attention as well. So sometimes you have to do that. Stephanie from Fort Lauderdale says, when you're negotiating with a bully like Putin, what is the best approach, deference or defiance? No, you can't, you, you can't afford to just be deferential with Putin. He doesn't respect that. Um, I, I remember my first meeting, this was right around the time John and I met, August 2005 with Putin. I was the newly arrived American ambassador in Moscow. So the first meeting takes place in the Kremlin, which is a you know, a place built on a scale that's meant to intimidate visitors, especially newly arrived American ambassadors. So, um, you know, you walk down these long corridors through these huge ornate halls, you come to the end of one hall, and there are these two-story bronze doors. You're kept waiting for a few minutes in front of it just to let all this sink in. 
doors open a crack, out comes Vladimir Putin, who despite his bare-chested persona, is not that intimidating in the flesh. He's about five, six, even with lifts in his shoes. But he carries himself with a lot of self-assurance. So he comes walking through the door, and before I got a word out of my mouth, said in Russian, you Americans need to listen more. You can't have everything your own way anymore. We can have effective relations, but not just on your terms. That was vintage Vladimir Putin, not subtle, almost defiantly charmless. But in dealing with them, to answer your question, you gotta be firm, you have to be consistent, you have to be well-prepared. The worst thing in the world with Vladimir Putin, or I think many autocrats, um, is to think that ingratiating yourself with them is gonna get you very far. I remember, you know, in the summer of 2018, President Trump had a summit meeting in Helsinki with President Putin. They gave a press conference afterwards. And at one point, Trump, President Trump was asked about the view of his, his law enforcement and intelligence agencies that Putin and the Russians had interfered in our elections in 2016. And President Trump basically threw those 17 agencies under the bus and said he believed Putin on this as well. Now, Putin, the president may have thought that was a way to ingratiate yourself with Putin and cut big deals. From Putin's point of view, um, that was evidence of manipulability and weakness. And if you could have seen the cartoon balloon coming out of Putin's head on that stage, it would have said, what an easy mark. Because from his point of view, professionally trained to take advantage of people's vulnerabilities, that was a sign of weakness. So you can't afford, uh, you, you can't delude yourself into thinking that being deferential with someone like that is going to get you very far. Um, in terms of Putin, will he ever leave the presidency? I mean, how do you see this unfolding for him? No, I mean, I think he's, um, as long as he's living and breathing, he's likely to remain the central decision maker in Russia, whether his title is president um, or not. He's created a political system that, you know, revolves, um, you know, around him in a lot of different ways. So I, it's a political system that's becoming more brittle. Um, he's built it on top of a one-dimensional economy that's way too dependent on what comes out of the ground, on oil and gas in particular. Um, but, but no, I don't think um, Putin sees his role as George Washington, you know, going off to a quiet retirement someplace. Uh, Kevin from Washington asks, what is the best way to tell a president or a secretary of state they're mistaken? Presumably not in a large meeting, but, but I guess more to the broader point of, you know, when do you, in a meeting, you know, offer dissent? I mean, is it appropriate, say, if you're a deputy secretary of state to disagree with the secretary of defense? Um, obviously, you have to read the dynamic of the room yeah. when you're invited, but what was your general view about, you know, disagreeing with the emerging consensus in a meeting? Well, sometimes I think it's important, it's essential to disagree. You know, you don't get to do good decisions and you don't make choices, which invariably are choices between really bad and less bad sometimes in dealing with international crises, unless you're honest about it, unless there's an honest debate. And presidents I worked for um, and secretaries of state I worked for who were most effective encouraged that kind of debate. Now, your questioner is right. You know, that's not necessarily going to be the case where you want to do it in a crowded room or where it looks like you're just popping off or where you're not taking into account the difficulty of the choices that any president's going to make. Because presidents generally have to make the really hard choices. The easier ones get made, you know, before they get to a president's desk. But I've always found, you know, presidents and secretaries I admired most encourage that. 
and they encouraged people to be honest, even when it was inconvenient, um, even if it, it was not easy to hear. And when you get institutions which beat out that sense or discourage that sense of people being honest about their concerns, um, you're going to have less effective institutions. I mean, you know, as an ambassador overseas, you know, where it's easy for you to take on kind of imperial airs sometimes because everybody caters to you. You know, you want to create a situation, and I always tried to encourage my officers, you know, working in the embassy overseas, if they had concerns, I wanted to hear them because I couldn't make well-informed or sensible choices without them. Bill, Nancy from Chicago asked, I heard Robert Gates say recently on NPR that Joe Biden is a kind and trustworthy person but has been wrong on most of the foreign policy issues in the last 40 years. Is this a fair assessment of Biden in your view? No, I, I don't think it is. I have a lot of respect for Bob Gates. I worked with him over the years. He's a really accomplished public servant, but um, no, I don't, I don't agree on that one. Um, you know, I think uh, Vice President Biden has enormous experience like anybody in public life all those years. There are things that he wishes he could take back because um, all of us make mistakes um, and make choices over time. But I think he's a, he's a terrific public servant and I have huge respect for him. Okay. And the final question, Bill, that maybe kind of brings all this together, uh, it's Bill from, um, from Carbondale saying, how can Americans be persuaded to more fully appreciate their diplomats in diplomacy? Why is diplomacy such an underappreciated profession? Part of it, excuse me, part of it is on us. I, I don't think American diplomats, and I include myself in this, made nearly uh, enough effort to help explain to American citizens what it is that we do overseas. We've tended to be a little bit too cautious in Washington, um, whether it's in dealing with the Congress compared to the US military, which you know has lots of officers trolling the halls of Congress, asking people, if they want to be briefed about something, rather than waiting to be summoned to some unpleasant congressional hearing. The State Department, I think, has been a little bit too cautious about that. You know, the State Department ought to be encouraging officers, not just senior ones, to go back to their hometowns. And this is a program that's existed, you know, in recent years. Um, but talk to people about what it's like to be an American diplomat overseas. I think the State Department needs to do a better job, all of us, over the years needed to do a better job of trying in very practical terms to explain to people that, you know, we always say smart American foreign policy begins at home in a strong economic and political system. We have to do a better job of showing that it ends there too, in a healthier environment to more jobs and economic opportunities and a better sense of, of security as well. You gotta provide people with examples from your own experience of you know, where things that American diplomats did overseas had a tangible benefit for American citizens, whether it's in economic terms and dealing with a pandemic or a global health crisis, helping individual Americans who get in trouble overseas. And that's a lot of what American you know, embassies do too. We're not nearly good enough in explaining that and, and driving that home to people and bringing it to life. Well, Bill, the final question I have for you is, how do you want to um, continue to do the good work of Carnegie? I mean, it's obviously one of the most respected think tanks in the world. Um, what sort of imprint do you want to make on the institution? Well, one of the big things that we're doing, I mean, we're known as a global institution, but I think one of the failings that we were talking about before 
is the disconnect that's developed between people like me, you know, card-carrying members of the Washington establishment, and lots of American citizens who don't, in my experience, and we need to be persuaded so much of the value of American engagement in the world. They, they get that. Helps to have allies and partners. We've got to be more disciplined about it. But when we preach the virtues of American leadership, there are a lot of Americans, for understandable reasons, who are pretty skeptical about our ability to be disciplined about the exercise of American leadership. Because whether it was Iraq in 2003, the global financial crisis, you know, there are too many instances where we haven't matched ends to means and we've gotten it wrong. So we need to do something that's kind of an unnatural act in Washington, which is actually listen a little bit more to people. We started at Carnegie, a new program two years ago um, that's entitled Creating a U.S. Foreign Policy for the American Middle Class. And we've done this in a series of case studies, first in the state of Ohio, then Colorado, then Nebraska. So three very different economic models and, and actually spent six or eight months in each state working with local partners in Ohio, our partner was Ohio State University, to try to get a much more you know, granular sense of what's on people's minds about what kind of trade agreements work for them, what kind don't work for them, what's their stake um, in you know, active American engagement in the world. And so we've, we're doing a, a major report in September on those findings, and none of them will really surprise you too much. I think that's one way in which I think Carnegie can help address this growing disconnect within our own society between citizens and a Washington establishment, which sometimes um, can be a little bit guilty of arrogance. Right. Well, I, I might say one thing to our, our participants. If you want to feel better about uh, the world and public service, I would invite you to go on YouTube and watch a discussion between Bill Burns and Jan Eliasson, which was in, I think, November of 26, as Jan was getting to, to leave, getting ready to leave the UN. But it's a wonderful one-hour discussion in which, you know, the, the, the tough problems of the world are discussed forthrightly, but there is a complete absence of cynicism or despair. Uh, Bill, do you remember that conversation? I, do. I know you and I Jan do. are good friends. Yeah, yeah, and he's a wonderful diplomat, too. I do remember that. Great. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your time. You've been really, really generous. And we'd love to get you out to uh, see some of the Midwest and Southern Illinois when, when, uh, when uh, travel permits. No, I'll look forward to it. It's the one place I didn't go to high school, so I'll look forward <laughs> to it. Yeah. Bill, thank you so much. Really appreciate My it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simon Cast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cast wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.